because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Adam and Laura, I have a mission for you. And your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to figure out why Tom Cruise never ages. This recording will self-destruct. Ah, that's stupid. This recording is going to self-destruct after <laughs> 10 seconds after it's finished playing. All right. I hope all of this stays in. Keep that. Keep it. Oh, my God. Okay. Welcome to Cows in the Field, the only movie podcast named after an offhand remark of Werner Herzog. I'm Laura. I'm Justin. And today we are joined by our friend and action movie lover, Adam Kane. Welcome. Thank you. And we're talking about the 1996 classic film, Mission Impossible, the OG Mission Impossible. By Brian De Palma starring Tom Cruise. Boom. All right, so, so starting before, off strong. Yeah, starting off strong. So before <laughs> we invited Adam on to the podcast as a as a you know as a good friend of Laura's and uh, from work, I guess, right? You guys were like work buds. That's true. And then um, Adam has like a really cool music blog, and he made us a mixtape. Adam makes mixtapes. Has this, this right. been a quarantine project for you? Yeah. So the um, like. The day we found out that we were all, um, everybody working from home for, for one week, uh, <laughs> back 13 months ago, oh, um, I started saying to people at work, like, Hey, if you, if you want new music, like, just give me a shout out. I'll, I'll make you a playlist. Tell me what genre you like. Like I'll send you some stuff. Um, and it has turned into this thing. I think I've made now like 75 playlists for people, wow. Whoa. um, which has been really, really fun. Um, uh, I listen to a lot of music, especially while I'm working. Um, and I've gotten really into film music, um, which I think is a lot easier to listen to while trying to write emails, just because it is keeping you focused on the task, um, without having lyrics to distract you. So, yeah. So what are some of your favorite, I mean, are some of your favorite tracks to work to on this mixtape that you made for us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, right, um, so we should say we uh, asked so, we asked Adam to make a movie playlist for us. Yeah, he made yeah. a mixtape yeah. for us for the for the occasion of this podcast. Yep. And there's some good stuff on here. But Adam, so like, tell me one of the ones you like to listen to that's on this mix. Yeah, so um, I really like the "Snow in the Garden" song uh, track from Little Women. Okay. Um, Which I think is just really sort of it like it like moves really well. It's very pleasant and calm. Um, going kind of in the complete opposite direction, um, Hans Zimmer's "Time" from Inception is just like the perfect. Like you could listen to that four and a half minutes on a loop yeah. for eight hours and get yeah. so much done.
I think there are like <laughs> YouTube videos of people just like doing it like electronic or whatever, and yeah. it's looped yeah. for like eight hours. So I think yeah. it's available. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's some other stuff on here that's sort of less like music to work to. Um, I really like the movie The Firm um, is an okay movie, but the main title is incredible. It's mm. uh, just like jazzy piano um, and it's just so fun. Um, and then sort of, you know, we can talk a little bit about how I got into action movies and spy movies and stuff, but, um, I loved all the James Bond movies as a teenager. Um, and that was a, a, a big way into movie music for me too. Mm-hmm. Um, John Barry did so many of the scores in the sixties and seventies and into the eighties, uh, of the James Bond movies. Um, and so the one on here by John Barry called try from on her Majesty's secret service um is is that's my favorite james bond score um and it's just really interesting different uh music and i think it holds up on its own really well do you have a favorite bond of the five i guess um it's hard it's it's hard for me not to say daniel craig Uh um because i think he just brings so much more to it than than you know anyone else had um but each of the each of the eras, and it's sort of like Connery, Moore, Brosnan, Craig, and then you know Dalton did two, and this guy George Lazenby did one. Each of them all bring their own thing, um, and I think each era of the Bond films kind of stands out in a different way. Yeah. Um, and when they're good in each era, they're really good. So I would, I would, we can talk a little bit about Roger Moore later if you want. Okay. Yeah. But well, all right. So here, let me, let me. This is going to put you on the spot. But as a Bond lover, yeah. I'm sure you've thought about this. Who would be your ideal James Bond casting right now? I think Henry Cable. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> he was in a movie, uh, The Man from Uncle, mm-hmm. uh, about five or six years ago, um, where he basically plays an American spy in the 60s. He doesn't basically play, he does play an American spy in the 60s. Um, and it's just like the perfect, sort of glamorous, kind of jazzy, uh, almost Bond movie. Um, directed by Guy Ritchie. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and he's really good at it. I keep great hearing great things about that. My my reason for not watching that movie is because I have han- handsome man blindness, and I cannot tell Armie mm. Hammer from Henry Cavill. And I, the trailers yeah. always made yeah. me so confused. But I'm sure it's when the, I get into weirdest, it, I will understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's good, and it's fun. And like it sort of came and went. It came out in 2015, and there were like seven other spy movies that year, mm. and that one just sort of got left behind. Um, but that one's weird because Henry Cable, a British person is playing an American and army hammer an American is playing a Russian person. Awesome. None of it makes any sense, but it, it, it works. I think is Debicki in that too. She is. she is. Yeah. Okay. So my here, here's let's suppose that we, we have to cast a Brit as Bond mm-hmm. Cause that's, I feel like a kind of, I don't know. I was like, if you don't do Brits, then it's, it's the field is almost too wide open. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of people because of Tenet, we're thinking John David Washington, maybe we go with the more, you know, we go with the black bond, right? We don't mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Then I was thinking, obviously, John David Washington's not British, but you know who is British? I got two. Well, the first one that came to mind was Daniel Kaluuya. Mm-hmm. I think he would he'd kind of great. rule as a James Bond. Yeah, he'd be uh, really good. And, and the other he'd is Idris. He'd be setting people on fire with his eyes. Yeah, and the other was Idris Elba. I feel like mm-hmm. Idris Elba is kind of the more convent, like the more obvious choice, actually. But Kaluuya, Idris Elba, 
I would love to see an Idris Elba James Bond movie. I think he is probably a little too old at mm. this point. That's true. That that's actually a good point. But I mean, Craig, yeah. Daniel Craig was almost too. I feel like Daniel Craig is. He always looks older to me than than he probably is. Yeah, I think I think what a lot of people see with Daniel Craig is is they think about Skyfall and they like purposely made him look really rough mm. in Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Um, he to me was the perfect age in 2006 when they did Casino Royale. He was like 37. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't think anybody expected that there, we, there would be like five years between all of these movies. Um, he's too old now, I think. So yeah, yeah. This, this one coming out in the fall is supposed to be his last one. All right, then um, I'm, and then I'm, I think they got to find someone who's like 35. Then I'm doubling down on Kaluuya. I'm I'm buying Kaluuya stock big time. Um, I that. mean, he's going to yeah. win the Academy Award this year. So like after yeah. this, it's like, what's up? What's next? Um, he, mm-hmm. I want to throw out a couple of things from this that uh, a couple, there are a couple pieces on this that as soon yeah. as they came on, Laura and I looked at each other and we were like, hell yeah. <laughs> the, one was the, the main title of Silence of the Lambs uh-huh. by Howard Shore. <laughs> That came on, we were just like, Yeah, that's it. It, It's it's so good. Yeah, excellent, excellent choice putting that in there. Um, and the the opening credits for that movie, I also really love. It's just, um, they're really good. Jodie Foster running past men. Um, it's ah, it's fantastic, it's great. But anyway, thank you for this beautiful playlist. Of course, yeah, I've been been re listening to it since I sent it to you because it's just, uh, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Can I talk about one other song, actually? So yeah. Yes, please. Um, I, a few years ago, saw one of my favorite bands, Punch Brothers, uh, in Cambridge. They're a, a bluegrass uh, band, and they're really, really good. Their opening act was this guy, Gabriel Kahaney, who's a singer-songwriter, composer. Um, and the song on here, on, on this playlist, is not from a movie, but it's a song he wrote about movie villains and movie villain tropes. Um, yes. And it's so much fun and really good. Um, and I highly recommend uh, that album in particular, but Gabriel Kahaney in general is a lot of fun. Cool. Let's see. What's the name of the track again? It's called Villains. Just Villains. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah. trying. I, the lyrics to that are so funny and, yeah. and quirky. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, um, I love that song. I had never heard it before. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, let's move into Mission Impossible, the movie of the day today. And um, we want to start out. This has been the kind of thing we've been doing recently, yeah. and I don't know if it's going to stick, but we're going to do it today. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, what we're going to do is we're going to start by talking about, to, we're going to address a fictional audience who has not seen this movie. Now, I don't know who hasn't seen <laughs> this movie, which came out in 1996, but whatever. Let's suppose that there's someone who's like, I don't know, should I watch Mission Impossible? Here we go. Um, we're going to start with a spoiler-free pitch yeah. for the movie. So we're going to give a kind of one or two sentence pitch to maybe hook someone. If someone's on the fence, do I want to watch this movie? How would you pitch it to them? Adam, what would be your spoiler-free pitch? I would say it is a fast-moving adventure movie where they do not give you a lot of information. They don't give you any more information than, than you need until the very end. Um, it is starring 
a whole bunch of incredible actors and it is filmed by a really, really top-notch director who probably um, shouldn't, you know, has no business directing a franchise actor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It's a wild choice. Seems right. That seems right. Yeah. I like all those ingredients. Laura, what's your pitch? Sure. So I guess mine would be like in response to somebody like, I haven't seen the Mission Impossible movies or I saw like Fallout. Do I need to see all of them? And to that, I would say, no, you don't need to see all of them. They're not really sequential. But also. But if you're going to, this is what to start with. That's yeah. what I'm going to say. I'm going to say this movie is a moody, paranoid, stylish, taut kickoff to the Mission Impossible franchise. It has all the kernels of the things about the franchise you love and got bigger and better in subsequent films, but without any of the cringe moments. Mm. Also, Seems, I will yeah. say that. I think this is the cutest that Tom Cruise has ever been, right, will a, ever be. Put a freaking pin in that. We'll come back to Tom Cruise and your weird crush on Tom Cruise. And I um, wish he'd wear my glasses more. I'm right. done. I'm done. Here, he looks here we go. Glasses. The glasses I know. <laughs> uh, You're just jealous. Calm down, Justin. We'll get into Tom Cruise. Um, uh, I have two pitches. One yeah. is... Tom Cruise works out his daddy issues. <laughs> number two. That's every Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> yeah. Number two is spies fucking rule. Like just, it's a fucking spy movie. Like it kicks ass and spies rule. And actually that takes me to the, to the, to the first question I want to ask us all here, which is, okay, so this movie comes out in 96. I, I imagine we all saw it around that time. I, I don't know if I saw it in theaters, but I, I definitely, it's been in like my life for a long time. And I want to know, like, you know, why does this movie continue to pull us back? Like, why does it hold up? And that's the first question, just specifically about this movie. Like, why is this movie rule? But then the broader question is, this is like a spy movie. And it's one of the, like, I don't know. It's one of the, like, best distillations of uh, of all the elements that matter and are, are cool about spy movies. And, like, why are spy movies cool? Like, what's cool and fun about spy movies? So these are these are just two open-ended questions. Adam, do you want to tell us a little bit about your history of the, with the movie? Yeah, so I actually, um, I did not see this right when it came out. Uh, I was 10 when this movie came out. Yeah, we were children. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I uh, was not allowed to see PG-13 movies until I was 13. Um, okay. but <laughs> your parents were friends... very particular about the <laughs> 13 cutoff. <laughs> it's called PG 13 for a reason, Justin. That's right. My, Dude. my friends, um, most of whom had older siblings and their parents were a little bit more laissez-faire, um, who did see this were like obsessed with it and loved the music. And we used to like at recess play mission impossible, yeah, um, where we just like run around and like chase people and sing the music. And I remember one of my friends in elementary school, like, basically wrote Mission Impossible for a creative writing assignment after he saw the movie. Like, like it was just something that we were into <laughs> and talked about. And, okay. Um, that has kind of stuck with me. I think I wrote down three things that I really, that really draw me to spy movies. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's, it's adventure. And, you know, that's sort of broadly speaking, the set pieces and the chases and um, the sort of heist element to it. It's the, the glamour of it. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. people, sort of using costumes and masks and and mingling in, in high society and sort of pretending that there's this kind of um, this sort of elevated uh, status to like the high-minded criminal kind yep. of thing like yep. that mm-hmm. I think is really fun and interesting. And then the last thing for me is sort of the travelogue element to it. Um, yeah. And that's something yeah, I love yeah. about the Connery James Bond movies. It's like 
it's it's basically travel writing essentially, but there's a plot to it, you know, a, a spy plot to it. So so that to me is is really what brings me back to spy movies. The trip with sabotaging. <laughs> I'm sorry, that took me a second. Laura's like, wait a second, what? You bring like, up Steve Coogan again? God, how do you get Coogan in? And every <laughs> you just bring him up all the time. Uh, I'm happy for you. Did you see movies. this movie back like back? When it came out? You know, no. I didn't. Okay. Um, I do remember uh, a lot of playground Mission Impossible shenanigans. It's kind of funny. It's not really a kid's movie. Uh, I don't know what like. No, it's totally it, a kid's movie. There's nothing like every. There's very little violence. No, I there's don't mean all, that. I no just, sex. I just mean. Well, yes, I, I don't mean that it's inappropriate. What I just mean is like there's like the the Langley heist is like probably really fun to, you know, play on the playground. Yeah. Yeah. But all this like talk of the knock list and stuff yeah. like that stuff. I feel like I would be like, I don't know what's going on there's too many scenes of him typing on a computer to keep my attention (laughs) when i'm 10 (laughs) i see oh you mean when he's decoding like whether it's the book of job 314 you're not as a kid you're not that's not i would have been like next no (laughs) (laughs) i love it now give me more i I love watching you know old you know dial up internet on movies i like weirdly love it but um but i don't know that it would have kept my attention at 10 but you know what i did watch definitely before i ever watched mission impossible one was Mission Impossible 2, which my dad loved <laughs> right, and right. was like on a loop at my house. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just so many pigeons and motorcycles. Like we watched that all the time. And I don't know if I ever, when I got around to Mission Impossible 1, I think it was when I was going through a De Palma phase in high oh, school. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay, well, we're going to talk about the De Palma aspect of this. But Adam, one of the things you you brought up about, um, you know, the, the appeal spy movies is the glamour and kind of globe-trotting nature of it. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important bit. And um, because there's this aspect of like, the spies aren't rich. They're just Mm -hmm. pretending to be rich. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of accessibility to their glamour that's not there if you're just like a fancy rich person. Like, we could all be mingling with these rich people as spies because we could like, we could go and join the CIA. So there's that accessibility component. But there's also like a power component that I find really cool. So as a spy, you have a certain asymmetry with in, in any mundane or interaction with the person you're interacting with, because you, of course, know you're a spy, but they don't know you're a spy. So yeah. you have some sort of power over them. And there's, I think, a kind of like, you know, it's 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 enticing. We want that. I, I want to like be in that position where there's that asymmetry of information and I can exploit that. And there's a, it, it infuses the mundane with a kind of intrigue. And I think that that thing is very, very, uh, you know, agreeable to us. And it's something that I think draws people into the spy genre. I mean, there's, of course, this other component of, like, the gadgetry, right? And, like, the gadgets are all these, like, ordinary objects. So, as a kid, it's really easy to get into it because you can be like, well, I don't have, like, a a rocket ship, but I do have a pen. And pens can be used in the spy movie to put, you know, uh, vomit juice into some guy's (laughs) coffee, you know? And so, then you're like, that could be me. Like, I could do that. And... It's like Bond takes that shit to the max, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. you is, gotta have the like scene with Q, right? Yeah, with Q, That's there's right. always like a bunch of like tooling up sequences. Um, but yeah, so like all of the gadgets, like it's like, you know, um, videos in the glasses, masks. Um, these are all like very like in some sense low tech things. I mean, I guess they were kind of high tech back then. But nowadays, we you know, Google Glass, we all have that stuff. And yet it's like that, again, is that element of it being deployed deceptively that I find... I find it really cool. I was really into spies when I was a kid. I kind of, I had the spy handbook. It's super easy to like, 
play pretend with all of this stuff yeah uh as a kid which is and and you know like I, I don't know. I don't know how much 10 year olds are doing this now, but like just running around and like pretending that you have the thing that they're, that they talk about in the movie was, was so much a part of my childhood, whether it was, you know, star Wars or something like this or, or whatever. Um, there's an escapist quality that I still find really appealing about these movies as mm -hmm. an adult. Yeah. I love it. I love that. Like, you know, just to get information out of someone, you have to set up a situation where, you know, like the beginning of this movie. So the movie starts out and they've got like the closed circuit TV camera and they're they're interrogating some guy. And then the walls like re remove like it's a fake set. It's just a set. Yeah. And I love that. Like, you know, we're privy to all that and we see all the you know, all the artifice behind what's going on. There's something very satisfying about that. The other thing that's really satisfying and the element, the other element of this movie that we haven't mentioned yet is the heist element. Like this movie yeah. is a spy movie, but it's also a heist movie. And heist movies just rule because they are like, here's a plan and we're going to explain the plan and how impossible this plan is going to be to execute. And then we're going to execute it. And Laura was mentioning that like, so in the mission, in this movie, we have, you know, uh, Ethan Hunt talking with Luther and Krieger explaining how impossible this mission is going to be when they get the thing from Langley. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. The terminal is in a black vault lockdown. The only person allowed in the room has to pass through a series of security checks. William Donlow. The first is a voice print identification and a six-digit access code. This only gets him into the outer room. Next, he has to pass a retinal scan. And finally, the intrusion countermeasures are only deactivated by a double electronic key card, which we won't have. And that's exactly the scene that you get in Ocean's Eleven. It's basically, mm -hmm. you know, there is it's even more extreme. There's a lot of, yeah, there's like, you know, when we get past the fingerprints, which we don't have. There's yeah. a lot of like pointing yeah. out the things that we do not have it's in so order cool. to get past. Making something seem impossible and then doing it is obviously like really cool. And, and it's like that element of creativity. And it's also the element of just like ingenuity and problem solving that like, I think we like, it's just, it's just satisfying to see someone... Yeah work at that level uh and this movie has that kind of thing in spades um i mean the first big sequence is a botched sort of pseudo heist and um i think that's also cool like it's cool when the heist doesn't go as planned like here's what needs to happen and then it doesn't go that way and now what's going to happen um how are the characters going to react in that sort of situation there's a lot of really satisfying things about this movie and it's also incredibly efficient right in yeah. how it sets up each thing like they don't spend a lot of time setting up the, the what's going to happen. But you know, you have a good sense of like what is supposed to happen. And then they just execute. And so yeah. then, you you know, you kind of are immediately know like what needs to go next. And you know the stakes as a result of them having spent some time building up like how difficult this is going to be. Yeah. The other thing that's really quaint about a lot of spy movies, not all of them, is is 
is the like ingenuity in order to get your information and the the emphasis on no violence or minimal violence like they make a couple people sick in this movie which Mm -hmm. doesn't look fun but like ethan hunt is really explicit about zero body count yeah um during that langley and that becomes like an ethan hunt mission impossible calling card Mm -hmm. which you know we were talking earlier about uh john wick and i john wick is so fun and the only thing that makes me feel icky about john wick is the like gung fu you oh, know, you mean the only the, the, the main thing of John Wick? <laughs> yeah. The only thing that you don't like about John yeah, Wick is, is the like, main is like thing. Like the main thing. No, I like the choreography. <laughs> you like it's the just fact that, that he's got so a dog. Much shoot- yeah, I like the dog. <laughs> you know, the thing about it for me with John Wick is the is the dog and the and he's cute. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like I, that that's another reason I think why it's like really fun for kids the, to get into. Yeah, I mean the thing about the thing about John Wick is the the violence is such that like like the number of people that die is is like there are so many expendable yeah. human beings yeah. in that movie, which I mean if you think about it for too long, totally takes you out of it. Um, so I recommend not thinking about it. For yeah, too I mean, long. <laughs> it just feels like a video game. You yeah. know, I, that's yeah. that's that's definitely, and that's its own thing. But um, but I I kind of love the the Ethan Hunt, you know, yeah. obsession yeah. with zero body count. Yeah, that's also. I mean, that's totally a trope too in in so many of these action movies. Like you know, you see it in the Marvel movies. Like like it, it was a it's a huge deal for all of those heroes to like protect the innocent bystanders. Yeah, I mean that's like batman's thing to a fault um you know it's it's when done really well it it makes for it makes for an interesting additional sort of set of stakes that's right uh, yeah yeah that's right it's like i laughed because i was thinking about the snyder cut where he brands people but that's a different (laughs) no we're not going into snyder cut here but but, sorry (laughs) no i agree with you that it it, you're right it adds this whole element of of like okay not i have the ability to kill anyone but my Mm -hmm. whole thing is that i have to prevent people from dying like that's exciting and i think that's part of what makes I'm going to get into this when I get into what I think is going on with Cruz here. But again, I think it's this idea of like, take the person who has ultimate power and like, in a way, shackle them and see yeah. how they're going to behave in that more complicated situation. Um, that said, I want more hardcore comic book movies. So I'm not talking about Logan or Deadpool, where Deadpool has action, it's R-rated, but it's all like goofy and right. meta. And I'm not talking about Logan, where it's like, are but it's about geriatric parents like that's not fun no i want to see wolverine (laughs) literally decapitating people with his claws like that's why i read those comics as a kid is that Mm -hmm. they're it's they're incredibly violent yeah like he gets shot up he gets like maimed and shot like in like you know all over his body he's got bullet holes and then he heals and you're like this this fucking rules like i want to see that on screen and i know they can do it and like, I basically want the, like, French New Extremity version of a comic book. I'm like, <laughs> give me that. It's interesting. So so Falcon and the Winter Soldier just came out on Disney+. Plus. Um, they, one of the showrunners or one of the executive producers also worked on the John Wick movies. Um, mm. So they are, they are shading a little bit more in that direction with Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay. They, it gets, for a Disney show, it gets dark. Um, so... You know, whenever you all get around to that one, um, it'll be interesting uh, what you think of that. It may be too late, Adam. I'm sorry to have to say this on mic, but I think I've I've burned out on Marvel. I think I just have. I mean, we were talking with, we were talking with Van Lathan about this last last time, but I, I, you know, you know, he's like we won, and the nerds won, and all that. But I, I really think that um, 
I feel like the nerds winning has kind of ruined it for me. And now I'm just like, I just want something else. I, I kind of want to, I just want to do something else now. And you, so you can take a break. You can always come I think back. I'm, yeah. yeah I, you can always come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sponsor, Adam sponsored by Disney plus. <laughs> you can always come back. <laughs> we'll still be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we probably will make our way back at some point. Justin. Yeah, maybe, we I just be, know. you know, we went hard in watching all the Marvel movies before infinity war. And mm-hmm. you know, we had, then we had a couple of years as a palate cleanser but we'll make our way back. I oh, guess yeah. so. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, so on we're talking about Mission Impossible, obviously. Right. Not, not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> uh, and in this movie, you know, the plot of this movie is kind of hard to make sense of. So I think we should spend a little bit of time just like sort of working through the plot because I was asking Laura a number of questions because there were parts where I was like, like, what was going on here? Like, what was just thought, thought of from the, perspective of different characters so here's one way to think about it so jim phelps played by john voight he's got this team it's got ethan hunt it's got claire his wife it's got a bunch of emilio emilio's there don't, I don't you even dare know forget it, about emilio i, <laughs> I don't, don't even know, know what his character's name emilio <laughs> yeah exactly yeah no no doubt yeah exactly when i first saw this movie i was like emilio Estevez is obviously the main character <laughs> my ducks. Is don't get attached movie. to him incredible exactly yeah. and then he dies like five seconds in and i thought hmm, oh, that kills me that's yeah i love emilio it's a tragedy but that's okay okay so they got the team they found out that some guy galitzin is trying to steal the knock list which basically would def- defeat the cover of all the various agents in in the field all the deep undercover agents and but they found this out. So now the goal is to find who the buyer is. So they got to they got to shadow first of all catch him in the act. Then they got to shadow him to the buyer and apprehend them. Okay, that's the plan. That's like the stated plan. Couple things. Now this is all obviously spoilers, but okay, there's already a team at the embassy where they where they go. And and you know when you rewatch the movie, you you can see all the clues there. You see all the suspicious people who are planted throughout the various scene uh various parts of the scene and so already something's up then we learn that it was a mole hunt because the cia actually or whatever the imf already found out about this and they thought there was a mole in uh john voigt's crew in in the uh in jim phelps crew so what they do is they galitzin is just he's hired by them He's like a fake. He's hired by them um, to to do all this stuff. And then they're going to try to see kind of like who, who the last person standing is. And then that they'll think that's the mole or whatever. So the question is, so Jim Phelps was the one who was interacting with Max, who's the actual buyer, who's played by uh, Vanessa, Redgrave. Vanessa Redgrave. And OK, so. Is, so what I was initially confused about was I was like, okay, so does Phelps know that this is a mole hunt or does he think it's like a legit, like he thinks like this is all happening? Because if you think about it, Phelps has, the, he's the actual buyer who's going to get the thing from Galitzin and give it to Redgrave. But like so when he gets the mission on the plane and they're like, all right, here's your mission, blah, 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 Galitzin and stuff. Is he just thinking like, A, oh, great, it's a mole hunt? Or is he thinking like, B, great like i'm gonna be the guy investigating myself because like this is of course me who they're after like so what, what's going on here I'm- i i thought it was the second one not the first one i don't think he realized that there was going to be another imf team there 
I Uh think he just thought, well, what convenience? They're looking for this buyer and I can lead them astray somehow. Yeah, so his plan is to like lead them to someone else or? um, I'm not sure what his ultimate plan was. I think he did plan to kill him, to like die. To pretend to die. But Krieger is his guy. Krieger kills Galitzin and gets the thing. Is his plan just like, I guess, take? I guess I, take the thing from yeah, Galitzin. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't know because he doesn't know it's a mole hunt. He thinks that the knock list is legit, and I think because if he thought the knock list was not legit, I don't think he would have bothered to bring the blood covered fake knock list to Max. I think that would have pissed her off. Right. So I think he does not know it's a mole hunt. He thinks that Galitzin is, you know, he now understands that Galitzin has been like hired by IMF. So he's just going to take out Galitzin, use him to get the knock list, fake his own death. And get out of town with six million dollars. But I don't think he knows Glitzen's hired by the IMF. Like that's what I'm not sure. What's oh, his relationship oh, right. to Glitzen? That's mm. the. It's really confusing to me. Like I'm not totally sure if Glitzen, like presumably he would have hired Glitzen, but then he also hires Krieger to kill Glitzen. So I see. Yeah. So then he just real. He might not realize that IMF hired them. He's just like, well, I'm all figured out that Glitzen's getting the knock list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take him out. Yeah. I'll take myself out. Six million dollars. Okay, but does that Adam? Does what that, do you yeah. think? <laughs> I try to work this out. I think I think that's right. The other thing I was thinking about, and this is sort of the first time I thought about this, the first time watching this movie that, that, that this occurred to me is that I think you're kind of meant to believe that Phelps had been had been doing some of this on the side for a little while, uh-huh. like he had sort of worked his way into playing both sides and this was sort of the ultimate and last score for him mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 mm-hmm. that makes yeah. sense okay so then his plan is to get it to redgrave and max and then but pretend to die so mm-hmm. then and then frame ethan hunt because he's the one who took the money from max the 100k from max and put it in ethan hunt's parents right. uh you know retirement ho- community or whatever retirement fund and so framing hunt as like which was if you actually think about it like that's pretty fucking obvious like so blatant that like why would hunt do that like it's like kind of ridiculous but anyway okay so we're ima- we're supposed to imagine that that's his idea is to frame hunt kill everyone on the team including himself allegedly and then mm-hmm. hunt will take the fall i guess they'll just again Probably bad idea to frame of all of the people on the team, Ethan Hunt, the one who's like a complete determined maniac, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, like, yeah. like maybe do Emilio because Emilio seems yeah. kind of meek. Maybe frame him. Um, he's he's going to crack under pressure. Hunt is not going to crack. I wonder. So and we can talk uh, later about sort of the the meta element of this script. But I think. My sense is that some of that is left over from a version of the script where it was the team was a whole bunch of like IMF old timers mm. who had been around a while, and Ethan Hunt was the new guy. Oh, interesting. Uh, um, and so he was the obvious sort of the obvious fall guy yeah, in that, makes that sense. scenario. And I that think this sense. was kind of left over from that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, okay. so then then you know. Phelps presumably six his wife Claire on Ethan mm-hmm. to like you know, try to tail him to kind of be constantly giving back information to Phelps. Phelps learns that through her that, you know, the knocklist was fake. It was a mole hunt, blah, blah, blah. And so then he's trying to figure out what to do. But now, now we're going to switch gears because what's Ethan Hunt's plan? So he's been, you know, he's been framed and the IMF thinks he's a double agent or whatever. But like, 
His plan now is to get the actual knock list yeah, to give normal. to Max or to like dangle in front of Max so that he can get to the, the actual buyer the, the or whatever, the actual mole. And then like turn him over. Is that like, so his whole plan. He needs to clear his name so that he can save his yeah. parents. He's got to get back in the IMS good graces. So he has to p- bring the person on a platter yeah. who is the true betrayer. It makes sense. No, it does make sense actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it does feel like there are like more straightforward ways to get that. But I, no, I see it. I see it. I just wanted to yeah. get it out there to make sure we're clear on like, so his plan is to do the most impossible mission to get Max in the same train as the as the mole, as um, the Kittredge, the IMF director, and then like, bam, be like, all right, arrest Max, arrest the traitor guy, clear my name. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I think that's what the, the franchise then has so much fun with later is like yeah. this idea that like, if there is a, a simple way to get to something, Ethan Hunt is going to like jump out of a plane over that simple way and then Mm -hmm. like get in a boat and then like you know like that's he's gonna get there his own insane way and his team is gonna be like what like every time (laughs) that's true (laughs) i mean the other thing is so in this movie especially ethan hunt is the only person he can trust he he is only able to trust himself he knows that he's good so he has to get the knock list so that anybody anybody else who gets it he can't trust so he has to get it that's in order for right. it to stay safe. That's a really good point, Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He He's afraid that someone else will steal it and then right. it'll get out there or whatever. Someone else who's working in the IMF is, is going to be a double agent and get leak it. Oh, that's that's really good. That's really good. I didn't think of it from that perspective. Are you loving this movie more and more? No, I, I, what, Mike, these points are just clarification. I love this movie. I don't need it to actually be coherent, although it is coherent. I just, just wanted to make be clear in my own mind of of what happens because I do it is coherent, it is. but it is incredibly discombobulating until the last yeah forty minutes or so yeah. Mm-hmm. W- but I love all that. I love yeah. all that. And so here's the other question: So what's Jim Phelps's motivation? And so there's this really wonderful scene, maybe for me actually the pivotal scene in the it's movie the where they meet in uh, King's Cross Station uh, in London, and they they have this sort of you know, Jim is pretending like he's been shot and all that. And he's got the like cast or whatever. He's got the sling in the arm. And so he's like recounting the events together with with Jim. And there's this wonderful thing that happens, which I think as a young kid, I found incredibly frustrating. It's because it's very confusing editing, but it's actually very purposeful and really interesting. So Jim says, you know, Kittredge did it all. He's he's the mole. And mm-hmm. and Ethan says like, oh, my God. You're right. You know, unless you were an eagle-eyed viewer, you didn't realize that Ethan, before the scene immediate pri- immediately prior, he had already figured out that it was Jim because of the Drake Hotel Bible mm-hmm. thing. That he realizes the Bible he's been carrying from their first place in Prague. Ha- was stamped with the Drake Hotel, and that's the one that um, Jim's been using to, like, I don't know, get his get his Bible quotes to contact Job, and so like that, you know, already is like very subtle. They give you it, and then okay, so now he, he, when Ethan says you're right, he's pretending, and then they engage in this really interesting series of flashbacks where Jim is like telling him like, yeah, Kittredge, you know, did this, did that, and so on. He killed this person, and. And Ethan's agreeing with him and he's trying to, it's looking like what we're getting is a flashback to like what Ethan 
is like pretending to think he remembers or something. But what we're really getting is like either what Ethan in that moment is actually thinking, namely, here's Jim doing all these things, like Jim and maybe potentially Claire working together. Or we're getting like Jim's recollection of the events where he's recalling like faking his death and, you know, killing Emilio and so on. But what's confusing about it is that you're just you're not expecting that to be the part of the flashback. You're, you're expecting something else. You're expecting like, I don't know, Ethan to, I don't know, this to be Kittredge there or something. Um, and and it's not. And it, what it's showing really economically is that Ethan's figured it out. Like he really yeah. has figured out that that Jim is is the bad guy. And I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, I love that uh, that the flashbacks work on three levels. Three, I think, because it's either Ethan piecing it together while pretending that he's with Jim on it being Kittredge, mm-hmm. um, or it's Jim Phelps remembering because he kind of makes like a grimace face right after we see him yeah. like push the button to kill Emilio, which kind of implies like it's his memory of being like, oh, that was kind of gross. I had yeah. to kill Emilio. Um, or it's like the director ex- being like, pause this has been really confusing let me just pan let me just like lay this out for you i'm going to show you it's going to be the film's reveal to the audience and now like you are with ethan Mm. um in lockstep and i think the moment where claire turns and looks at the camera camera. yeah that moment i think is like the part where the director's like you with me you got it like that's like de palma talking to the audience there Mm. so there's like that third layer Mm. um so i think it's just like an amazing scene the other fun thing about it is that you know, you know, as, as as you watch this, you come to understand that Jim is pretending, that Ethan is pretending yeah. right back. Yeah. And we had just seen Ethan do this really well mm-hmm. with the floppy disk sleight of hand scene, which I think is like such a Tom Cruise tour oh de force God. moment. <laughs> Laura loves Tom Cruise doing magic. That's right. it She's like... He, it is Tom Cruise that is most Tom Cruise in this movie. Yes. That and yes. him like angrily typing on a computer are like the two best <laughs> in every language moments. he's yeah. just like oh here we go here's yeah. check all right i'm so tired yeah. but like i know every, i know every language um <laughs> he's like he does the thing where he like shakes his head open and yeah. his, his eyes get big <laughs> so good <laughs> totally yeah oh god i love that scene he's got his little v-neck on and you know he's just like oh you think i'd give you the knock list and he's doing his little magic trick and stuff and playing with claire's coat and then and then there's the reveal that in fact uh he was just bullshitting because he needed to get that he actually needed to get the 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 disc back from what's the character krieger Krieger. thank you um but so we know that he's really good under pressure he's really good on the fly he's really good at making you believe something and then he like needs to put it in play like right in the moment but it's way more emotional because this is his father figure right Right. okay but that also brings us to jim phelps's motivation which is revealed in this scene yeah that's what i i was started (laughs) with that but then i wanted to (laughs) get through that part because i thought it's, it's such a fascinating sequence to break down but all right, so Jim reveals through his, you know, that it's that it's really Kittredge because he's pinning it on Kittredge. At the end of this whole, like, you know, thing where they pretend to come to terms, Ethan says, why? Why, Jim? Why? Doesn't he even say, why, Jim? Jim? Yeah, I why think you're right. Why, Jim, meaning why Jim would, would Kittredge do exactly. it, but really also meaning why did you do it? Why Jim? did you do it? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. What's, it's so fucking confusing, but it's also <laughs> yeah. so amazing. It's also that ambiguity in 
what he's asking is just, it's so compelling. And anyway, and then Jim answers. And what Jim says, again, ostensibly speaking for Kittredge, like, well, let me try to figure out what would go on in his mind. He's really telling the us and the audience and he and Ethan Hunt why he did it. When you think about it, Ethan, it was inevitable. No more Cold War. No more secrets you keep from everyone but yourself. Operations you answer to no one but yourself. And then one day, you wake up. The President of the United States is running the country without your permission. The son of a bitch, how dare he? And you realize it's over. You're an obsolete piece of hardware not worth upgrading. You've got a lousy marriage and 62 grand a year. Well, I mean, he basically says the Cold War is over. Uh, and we don't have any fun anymore. And now there's accountability and the president is now running the United States and that sucks. And also I only make $63,000 a year. So like, fuck that. Yeah. And he doesn't like his marriage anymore. (laughs) Oh yeah. His marriage sucks. Yeah. Yeah. That was the part where I was like, I don't know why you're making comments about Kittred's marriage if you're trying to pretend this is Kittred's motivation, but, uh, right. Is that, did I, I, I he's basically in a midlife crisis, (laughs) the midlife crisis of a spy, uh, And I think that that's so interesting. It's such a telling thing that Phelps is basically telling us, hey, we, U.S., won the Cold War. It's over. There's no more threat to America anymore. America's dominance, both economically, militaristically, uh, and also culturally. So, like, what are we supposed to do now? Like, where's the fun of chasing around the Soviets? Not only that, now it sucks, uh, we, we also have the... The president and the people were accountable to all these people in ways like that we weren't before because there's not really a, a major looming nuclear threat anymore. So our life's kind of boring. We're just kind of running around and, you know, we're we're getting the we're cleaning up the sort of the, you know, what's left over from the from the Cold War. And um, and you see that at the beginning of the movie, actually, that I think the guy it's Dimitri. So it's probably some like ex-Soviet Russian yeah. you know, guy that they're they're just like getting the last threads tied up and yeah it's boring he's just bored and i think to some extent that like reflects the th- a broader theme of this movie and also like movies in the 90s which is like when you got like the 90s were like the decade of american sort of dominance and exceptionalism when there when i really think you could have made the case that like america was that was like the peak of america for in like re- you know in, in recent memory um you know, we were just doing good and there were no threats. And then that changes 2001, right? So immediately 2001 with like, you know, with uh, 9-11 and all that, now it, it completely shifts and, um, you know, anti-terrorism and all that. And 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 I think what we're going to see in the coming years is like sort of China and, and it's going to be much more interesting global dynamic. Mm-hmm. But in the 90s, there were no there were no challengers. And I think this is reflected in the action movies of the 90s. So you you get a lot of action movies where the conflict is not it used to be soviet and is replaced by like aliens and you know giant asteroids and meteors and and then also like ourselves like we are turning mm-hmm. on ourselves that's yeah. what's happening in this movie you get this kind of like the bad guys are us like we have to like you know defend against our, you know traitors within our midst and so I think it's a kind of interesting thing that connects the, the what's going on in this movie to like what's happening in in action movies, uh, yeah. you know, more broadly. Well, I think the other thing he talked, you know, the the line about him, uh, uh, you know, all for sixty two thousand a year. Like there's a there's a capitalistic kind of undertone too, um, where 
this is something you see like in the Die Hard movies and things like that, where the the villains are people trying to cash in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what's going on here too, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, you know, he's a guy that you know Jim Phelps is is someone who within the universe of, of Mission Impossible is uh, um, you know kind of the loyal IMF person for thirty years. Um, you know, he wants to. He's 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 passing around all this money. He is he is living in this society um, to to complete these missions. Like he wants a taste of it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, which is reap which those is, rewards. Yeah, which is also kind of an interesting thing. That is interesting. Yeah, I um I think it's like it's like yeah I worked for all I got us to this point where now America's on top. So where's my yeah. piece of the pie? Yeah, mm-hmm. and like. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, that's a good that's a good point of connecting connecting up these these thoughts. Yeah. What do you think about that, Laura? You know, I, I hadn't thought about that. That does seem totally right. Um, I also was thinking that there's like maybe as we are enjoying in the 90s, like maybe peak America, there's also maybe a little bit of a cultural discomfort with American actions in the past that perhaps have come a little bit more to light post Cold mm. War, um, you know, which there is that piece, you know, uh, that isn't really shown explicitly in this movie and becomes a little bit more explicit in next and like subsequent uh, Mission Impossible movies when there's this question about whether or not the IMF should continue to exist in a post Cold War climate. Yeah. Um. But you know, all of a sudden we, you know, when there was so much secrecy in the Cold War and you know national security was the issue, America was going around doing some really shady stuff uh, in the name of democracy. And, you know, either we didn't know about it or it felt okay because the enemy is worse and, you know, we have to protect against communism. But, you know, when we're out of that, we kind of look back on ourselves and realize what what we've done. Yeah. And, what did we lose in that process? What did we yeah. give up? Our, civil, you know, civil liberties and whatever else, our giant militaristic budget that now we can't back off of. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So and the IMF is like ex- existing in that in that weird space. Yeah. Um, and I guess part of what, you know, he's chafing at is that like he can no longer act with impunity. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like now, like the, you know, now we've got Senate hearings about yeah. the IMF. I mean, there I'm, will be in, in, you know, coming. What movies. I would tell Jim Phelps is I'm like, just hold on for five more years, baby. It's then you coming. Got the Patriot, Patriot Act. Act is coming, <laughs> yeah. man. You're going to yeah. have so much fun in five years. Uh, <laughs> also like just, just retire and be a contractor. Like <laughs> That's just true. go work for Halliburton and you'll make <laughs> so much money. That's true. Yeah. You got to get in with those changes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things Jim Phelps could have done instead of what he did. Well, uh, Ethan Hunt had to learn it from somewhere, though. Like, he had to figure out the most impossible way to do something from somebody. That's true. That's true. That's true. It's an origin story, right? Yeah. In, in a way, this movie, it's an He's origin like, what story. What would of- Jim Phelps do? Jim Phelps would break into Langley. That's how he would do it. <laughs> Um, Adam, you mentioned the meta narrative of this. I don't know much about the TV show. Did you ever watch yeah. the TV show? I never watched it, no. Um, but having, I'm one of those, like I'm a completionist where like if I watch a movie, I, I need to read everything about the movie. Um, okay. I'm, so I, you, I'm you not know, quite that. So please fill us in. <laughs> so, so Mission Impossible was a TV show in the 70s um, that was, I mean, you know, heist spy stuff. Um, that was very popular. I think they made like 150 episodes or something like that. Um, and then they brought it back for like three more seasons in the late 80s. So 
1996 making a Mission Impossible movie, like Mission Impossible was not really a distant memory, especially mm-hmm. for the people who were in it. And the people who were on the show in the late 80s, a lot of them were the same people who were in it in the 70s. Um, and the original idea for the script, if I remember correctly, is that the team at the beginning of the movie was the cast from the TV show and they all got killed off. And Jim Phelps, who, you know, winds up being the villain in this movie was the main character of the TV show. He was Ethan Hunt on TV Mm. and they reached out to the original actor to be in it. And he read the script. He was like, no fucking way I'm making it. (laughs) I'm not going to be a traitor. No, this is unacceptable. And I think what's interesting about it is that you could have made this movie without doing any of that. Like John Voight's character did not have to be Jim Phelps, did Mm -hmm. not have to be any way connected to the TV show. You could have taken IMF and basically, you know, the like, okay, we'll do the masks, which they did on TV. We'll do some of this stuff. You did not have to be so strongly connected to the TV show. Yeah, it could have been The Mandalorian, essentially. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It could have just been a separate section. Yeah. Um, As a kid, I was like, who cares? It's like cool spy movie. But like, I don't know. It feels kind of cruel. Like they purposefully Hmm. tore everything down to prop up Tom Cruise in this, in this movie. Um, And then the, the other thing about the show, and again, I haven't seen the show, but I've, you know, I've read this like the show is like all about teamwork and all about everybody working together, which you can see a little bit at the beginning of this movie. This movie is, is again, is, is Ethan Hunt not trusting anybody. This Mm. is, there is not a team. Uh, he winds up like they wind up building the team back up in subsequent movies. But this movie in particular is about tearing down the team and propping up this one main character. So it's a very, I don't know. It's a very interesting deconstruction of what the show was. Right. And this is the moment that Tom Cruise is taking control. Exactly. Uh, You know, he's had this career where he's had, he's run hard at getting an Oscar Mm-hmm. And he's worked with so many amazing directors and it just hasn't happened for him. And not that he expected to get an Oscar, you know, as Ethan Hunt, um, you know, through this popcorn movie. But he was like, I want to make big action movies. I have the star power and I and I want to have some control in this, too. I want to be able to pick my directors. I want to be able to pick my have a hand in picking the cast. And he's like being a real Ethan Hunt control freak about it mm-hmm. and maybe yeah. not trusting other people. You know, yeah. he's like, this hasn't you know, I need to I need to have more of a hand in this uh, for this to go the way I need it to for my for my image and my career and my persona. Um, cause I understand that what I've heard is that he, he had a, you know, he wanted De Palma, mm-hmm. which was kind of a weird choice as you pointed out, Adam, because De Palma doesn't make, you know, blockbuster movies, his movies no. don't make money. Um, but he knew that, you know, he was the star that was going to bring, you know, butts in the seats, uh, Tom Cruise was, and that he wanted to like have a, a cool, interesting, yeah. stylish director. But when he got there, apparently like they kind of clashed because he really rode, um, De Palma, and, you know, had a vision for how he wanted to do it. And he wanted to do, you know, max two takes. And he wanted to, like, keep it lean. And he had a lot of thoughts on how to run a set. <laughs> um, so it is funny that, like, the movie is about Ethan Hunt trusting nobody and needing to mm-hmm. have complete control. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting um, about this is I th- my sense is that they had the the set pieces pretty much mapped out. and. It was a lot of 
writing and rewriting and bringing in new screenwriters to get from set piece to set piece. Um, That feels how they make them now too. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also, I mean, Tom Cruise taking control. I I read the book um, uh, Art of the Screen Trade by William Goldman. Um, uh, I read this last spring. It was written in like the late 70s. So William Goldman wrote All the President's Men and Princess Bride and Butch Cassidy. Like he's an incredible screenwriter. Um, And it was, uh, it's like a lot of inside baseball stuff about how movie scripts are written. And the book chafed a lot of people because he was like, yeah, you know, we write these scripts and then the stars come in and are like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That makes me look bad. Can't do that. Like I look wimpy doing that. And I like, I don't know, having read that book and watching this movie again, like I can kind of see some of that, mm-hmm. like, like Tom Cruise reading a script and going like, okay, this is good, but I need a scene where I'm like, like yelling. So like, <laughs> let's, let's get that in. Like, okay, yeah. I need a scene where I'm, you know, where I, where like there's some sexual tension. So like, where do we get that in? So I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, not to take away at all from this movie, but I, I, you can kind of see some of that. I like though this idea that the movie is a little bit of a kill your darlings on the original, the TV show. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if that's partly because, so there's a kind of intergenerational conflict here between yeah. Cruz, who's like a, sort of in the Jonah Moore Gen X era, and then you've got the boomers like Voight and the the people who grew up with the Mission Impossible TV show and stuff and who were in it were the the boomers. And, you know, you get this kind of, that's the same kind of conflict that you get where the boomers are like, hey, we worked really hard and now look, we defeated the Russians. And now you got this, (laughs) you, you young buck, like, you you got all the privilege in the world because we worked all you know worked our butts off and and you know uh brought america to total economic dominance and and then the gen xers are chafing at that a little bit and they're like no we need to we need to step out from under your shadow and create our own stories and tell our own stories and not be beholden to the to the history that you've written sure granted it was good and all that so I do wonder to to what extent this is like an attempt of like, you know, Cruz via his screenwriters to to be like, hey, um, let's let's take all of the parts that the the boomers are gonna want from this movie and like destroy them, <laughs> <laughs> completely destroy them. Just get rid of them. Make the good guy the bad guy. Yeah. And um. Totally. I know I'm thinking about that first scene, which is the where not not the first one where they you see a little bit a little a mini heist, but when they're mm-hmm. getting we have them they have the team together and Phillips is like giving them the yeah, rundown. He's like the father. And yeah, and they're teasing him. Yeah. They're saying he's gotten soft in his old age. He doesn't know what's up anymore. He just goes to like recruiting events and like gets put up at the hotel. Like they're like sort of been like, Your time is done. Like we we we're in the guys now. Um, you and, know, that's and, and they're saying that to the lead character yeah. of the previous show. Yeah. And I think that then there's similarly a resentment on his behalf towards them. Like, you don't see it. But like this dude, as we know, is now planning to basically middle finger all of them yeah. and <laughs> and take his six million dollars or whatever and cash out. So there is this sort of like weird fraughtness between their relationship that you don't really it's not on the surface at all but you kind of know it's bubbling there that he's just sort of they're all like joshing him and he's all thinking in his head i'm gonna kill you you. fuck (laughs) you i'm gonna fucking turn take the elevator and slam you into a spike 
Like, get ready, yeah. motherfucker. Poor yeah. Emilio. He's lonely, too. He says that a couple times. It's true. He's, like, hitting on, what is it? Uh, which one is he hit? Chris and Scott Thomas? I don't know. Yeah. He's hitting on one of those. Uh, but that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it in the context of this show and how it's, like, subverting all those elements of it. In a way, I like that, though. I like when adaptations of previous, uh, you know, material aren't beholden to the material. I actually take it and try to do something different and unexpected. I find that just so much more interesting because I don't want my, you know, my whatever pop media to just spoon feed me what I think I want. Because often when that happens, you know, it's like eating a candy bar. You're like, I want the candy bar. But afterwards, you're like, that left me feeling completely unfulfilled. Like I had the like momentary sugar in my mouth, but now I just feel sick or I feel empty because it didn't really do anything for me. And so I kind of like that the movie was like, yeah, going to try to do something completely different. Well, I think I think the brilliance of the series is that they tore down all of this from the show yeah, and have movie by movie like built it back up. So now yeah. they're like, like Ethan Hunt has a team that keeps coming back uh movie after movie and it 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 feels earned right yeah and and that's the thing like laura's always po- t- telling me is like the movies end up becoming about friendship right it's that. it's yeah. not about totally. ethan hunt being this lone wolf who can do anything it's about that he needs his friends and he's kind of come to trust other people and that's like the arc of Ethan Hunt over the course yeah. of these many movies. And that is really cool. I love that. I love that about these movies. And I also love that there's not a lot of romancing. Like um, uh, Amy Nicholson in her book on Tom Cruise uh, says that like the ev- talks about the evolution of Ethan Hunt and points out that he's like wildly inconsistent from movie to movie, which mm-hmm. is purposeful. But uh, but she calls him sexless at one point. I think by Ghost Protocol, he has no love interest. And yeah. it's like kind of awesome. Yeah. I love that. I, I mean, just like who needs they it? They kind of. <laughs> They kind of walked that back a little bit with Fallout. They which did. Is I know. I really wanted him and Ferguson to just be like buds who know yeah. how to spy together. Yeah. But yeah. that's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise didn't have any sort of he didn't feel beholden to the to to the TV show, obviously, as we just discussed, but also because he had envisioned this franchise to be something that would be really variable in tone and style from movie to movie. He knew he didn't want to have like De Palma be every, you know, do every single movie where it become a franchise. He wanted to like Basically, what he's done his whole career, work with cool directors that are really different and like let them do their thing and like just use the Mission Impossible sort of, you know, tropes as as a jumping off board, which I love about that series, too. They're obviously now becoming a lot more similar because, you know, Macquarie has been doing them all is going to do the rest of them. But for the first four, they're wildly different. Yeah. And I mean, Rogue Nation and Fallout visually are very different. So mm-hmm. even though it's the same director, it's it it seems like Macquarie very purposefully like threw out all his notes from Rogue Nation when he made Fallout, so that it would fit in that sort of non stylistic style. Like mm-hmm. like all these movies are going to be different, even if it's the same director. Like we're still going to do a bunch of different things, which I think is really fun and cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so let's talk about Tom Cruise now a little bit. So I mean, Cruise he's at the top of his game, the mid nineties, and. I feel like there's this interesting thread in his career where he obviously is a very handsome guy. He's kind of built himself up to be this guy who could do anything, right? Like mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's like, I, I can surmount. He can fly a plane. He any, can make a cocktail. Any, uh, yes. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> can make a cocktail. <laughs> he Sorry, can dance so... in his underwear. He, a, he can drive a race car. 
he can, can do an Irish accent. No, he can't. He can Forget go far it. and away. <laughs> no. yeah. But anyway, we're done. So we're done. We're done. Cruise, you know, I think what's interesting about Cruz, though, is that he's this kind of like, in some sense, like a, a perfect masculine specimen. But on the other hand, he doesn't typically play these the kind of standard leading man roles. So he often wants to play these characters that are put in really tough compromising positions that, as you pointed out, Laura, don't have sexual, you know, chemistry with their partners, right? Like, he, you know, oftentimes he does it. He just, he plays these sort of sexless roles where he's put in, an, you know, in the most difficult situation and has to get out of them. And that, I think, is a really... You know, that's a kind of through line to a lot of the movies uh, of his career. So, I mean, you know, one of them is obviously The Firm. Uh, Minority Report is another one where, again, it's like it's Minority Report in this movie share a lot of similarities, actually, in the sense of like he's on the top of his game. He's kicking ass. Oh, shit. Now they're chasing him. And so like and he's got to clear his name and all that. So like I, I think like he is drawn to that. And the other thing that he seems to be drawn to. Because this seems to be at least a thread with some of my favorite cruise performances is this kind of guy whose masculinity is like right at the edge of being broken, being shattered also often by a, or was shattered by a, a father or father figure. So he has this very weird fraught relationship with fathers in his movies. And, and this movie in particular, like his relationship to Jim Phelps is of, um, you know, it's mentor to mentee father figure to son but then also like jim's wife is like super young and like is cast basically to play opposite ethan the whole movie and not jim phelps and you like forget for large stretches of the movie that like claire and jim are married because <laughs> they do not look like they should be married he looks like he should be her father and in fact actually she looks a lot like angelina jolie Ugh. who john voight is angelina jolie's father so it's like what the fuck is happening and so there's this weird like oedipal thing happening in this movie where mm -hmm. ethan is like having you know kind of there's a lot of like uh you know sexual tension there between him and claire and they even talk about like coveting the, his wife and all that. Jim talks about that at the end. And I think that like, I don't know, man, it's it's real weird. I think he's working out some stuff. Oh, no, I think I mean, that's that's true. His dad didn't was not there when he grew up. He like his mom was basically a single mom is what I understand. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what his relation. He's like kind of closed a little bit about except for that part of his biography. But yes, he's for sure got some daddy issues. <laughs> Um, and I think he even sort of like co-wrote that role in Magnolia with really uh, I think he had a I think they're like they worked Holy that out crap. a little bit together um, of and of and I I mean like Tom Cruise always comes in having a lot of ideas about his character one of my funny details that I learned from Abe Nicholson uh, book is that in that role um, at Magnolia he suggested he had the idea that the character should wear those like leather bracelets <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Which is such a good costume detail. Yeah, but he was like, I got this guy pegged. He needs to have leather bracelets. <laughs> but I think, you know, that dad, that dad stuff is like, you know, he and Paul Dam Sanderson like brought it in, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh it's definitely something that that is a recurring theme throughout his movies. Um But again, he's like in that movie, just to focus on Magnolia for a second, he's yeah. willing to be dressed down by that lady in that interview scene, right? There's like a willingness to like have his masculinity be subverted and challenged. I think is really, really interesting. And that makes him so much more of an interesting actor than he would otherwise be if he were just like, oh, I'm Tom Cruise. I'm going to do a $35 million movie every year and 
cash it out and they're all going to be the same. And I'm never going to do anything interesting where I like I appear vulnerable on screen. And yet he does, you know, he does these things where he has that element of vulnerability. I mean, this movie, he's not really ever he's put in a vulnerable position, but he's not ever shown to be like super vulnerable. He's always shown to be super competent. But I like that he wants nonetheless to be like, I'm basically like Thor or Captain America, but now put me in a situation where I don't have my hammer or my shield, yeah. right? Like yep. now I've got to like deal with w not having all the usual things that would normally get me through the day. And it's just so much more interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think he knows that. And I, that, that I think he like wants to be, I think he knows that's like the, the most fun character to root for yeah. is the like the guy who's so good at everything, but but is like, you know, without a net or without his team or, you know, it's backed into a corner. Um, and I think he's really careful about those kinds of roles. But also, like, then he knows the power of playing against the Tom Cruise type when he takes a role like Magnolia. Because you have, like, Maverick in your head and then you watch him you know, um, you watch him in that interview scene with Magnolia and it's just like all the more powerful because you're bringing all your Tom Cruise stuff in with you when you watch it. And he knows that. He knows when to subvert it. I mean, the other thing about Tom Cruise with Ethan Hunt is like, <laughs> like, what is his character? Like, he is his character just like, I'm good at my job and like this and that. Like, or is he like a career IMF guy? Does he really care about the mission? Or does he just care about clearing his name? Or does he care about his friends? Like in the later Mission Impossible, it seems like what he cares about most of all is his friends. He, he's like, yeah. fuck the IMF. Like, they could go to hell. I care about my friends. And that's really interesting that like, that's the kind of progression that you get. But in this movie, he kind of doesn't have any friends. So like what are, you know, his motivations are just merely self-preservation or something. But I think that the seeds of what they'll play with later there is because he does seem really concerned about the knock list, meaning like that people's lives are going to be in danger. Like he brings that up again and again. I think it's like what's motivating him is, yes, is he the needs actual to agents he needs to protect. Yeah. Like, not the IMF per se. Yes. It's, the that's human interesting. beings. Inter yeah. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. That's that's what I think. What do you think, Adam? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think. I wrote I wrote in the notes zero range, but what I really meant was blank. I mean, he's kind of a blank canvas. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, 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 yeah. He is he is so good at the um, the incredibly competent, like top tier at whatever it is he's doing, um, but then the world sort of falls apart underneath him, um, and it's a very specific character arc it's a very specific type but i don't think there's anybody else that does it quite like he does it maybe keanu reeves um mm. having him perform the perform all of this stuff the the sort of emotional arc of the character but then is is also doing all of this crazy action stuff i think that to me sets him apart and sets these movies apart his ability to like you can see his face while yeah. he is five thousand feet off the ground hanging off of a plane like like that doesn't, you know, Roger Moore didn't do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it makes it feel like this character is closer to Tom Cruise yeah. than Roger Moore is to James Bond. Like, yeah. there's something weird about the fact that that he's so willing to do this, and it almost is like he's just like this is a reflection of who I am as a person. Yeah. That's why yeah. I feel like it's okay to like probe his biography when we're trying yeah. to figure out Ethan Hunt because I think so much of this character is autobiographical. Yeah, and I think like the more they play with it later on when, you know, you get to a point where you're like, is Ethan Hunt like straight up insane? And mm -hmm. there's moments where his friends are like, is Ethan Hunt 
actually like he's crazy right and then it's we're also just wondering as an audience like is tom cruise okay yeah. like yeah. <laughs> is he all right like does he need to be on this plane like does is he getting something what enough out of life like what, should we be worried about him like is he gonna die in a hang gliding accident yeah you know i mean because yeah. one read on it is that he's an adrenaline junkie but another read on yeah. it is that he's like I need to make this character real. And the only way to make this character real is to like embody the character to do yeah. the things that the character is doing on the page, which would be like really twisted, but also kind of kick ass. Like he becomes like his whole life becomes like a performance art piece in a way. I think yeah. it's a little bit of that. I mean, the stories of him training for Top Gun is that he puked a lot. <laughs> oh, because he was in the... He went in the planes and I said, yeah, and like he was like, we're doing it again. Like I think he like wasn't always fun for him. I'd some uh, he's definitely having fun by the end of it, but I think yeah. sometimes it's like pretty uncomfortable. But he is like, it has to be my face. The audience will expects that from me. Yeah, I'm committed to this role. I'm committed to this character. Like let's do it again. Yeah, <laughs> let's there's bomb a, again. There's a story. <laughs> there's a story about um. There's that really great, incredible motorcycle chase in Fallout where they're they're in Paris riding against traffic. And it was the golden hour and they couldn't get the shot. And I don't think Tom Cruise was was supposed to be the person on the motorcycle to do this stunt. He was like, the motorcycle's here. I'm putting the helmet on. I'm a producer. We're going to get the shot. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, there's there's an element to like, like he cares so deeply about these Mission Impossible movies in yeah. a way that it's like, yeah, these are really fun action movies, but like. Also, you're a 59 year old man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Where's the I mean, you don't you don't have to do it, but but he does it, and it, it I think it does make these movies better. You're right, and I think this is going to be the those are this franchise is going to be what Tom Cruise is remembered for. I, that's my prediction. Right. I really think Ethan Hunt and Tom Cruise have become inextricably linked in yeah. a way that like hasn't. It's just sure he may have had better performances. You know, we can talk about that, but like this is. It, this feels like it is his project in a way that no other thing that he's done, you know, and he, now he's got the Top Gun thing. So maybe there's going to be some, you know, maybe that'll be another thing if he can get that going uh, a couple, you know, a couple movies down the road. But but I really do feel like, you know, Mission Impossible is going to be what we associate with Tom Cruise, like when we're looking back when, you know, when he gets his like lifetime achievement Oscar yeah. and when he's like 80 or something. I hope they give him a lifetime achievement of course, Oscar. They he will. worked yes, hard. They will. It's he, he doesn't the the other movies he makes nowadays the last 10 or 15 years like don't really sell. That's the other thing. Like like yeah, he's not you know, he was a huge box office draw in the in the late 80s and 90s. Mission Impossible now is the box office draw. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean and almost like against uh you know unexpectedly so i mean it's one of these weird things that like that that because it's it's not you know marvel succeeds because it, there's like six marvel movies a year and shows and stuff and all that there's like a mission impossible movie every four or five years like it's every four or five years you're kind of like oh yeah those things happened you know and then you're like okay let's get back into it yeah and they nonetheless perform incredibly well every time and each time i remember when they did I think it was four uh, Ghost Protocol. And I was like, really? Do we need another one of these movies? You know, like you I do. remember that you was. Do. You needed it. But I, I, I felt like my <laughs> sentiment at that moment was a, there was a like a wind where people were kind of thinking that. And then they saw Ghost Protocol and they were like, oh, crap. Yeah, I didn't realize that this is 
I needed this you kind really of thing. You really felt that when we saw in IMAX the Burj Khalifa scene? Like, was No, that- I didn't see it. I don't feel it after. I felt uh, it going in. I was just like, do we okay. really need to? Like, I, my, my parents took us to see that in IMAX. And this, uh, ha- it, this happened to me in a Best Buy in real time. Really? I was walking around Best Buy in like whenever the, the 4K Blu-ray came out for that. And it was on one of the big screens. And I was like, oh, yeah, they made another one of these. Like, oh, I can't believe it. And then I stood there and watched it for like 15 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, this is incredible. And I bought yeah. the Blu-ray and watched <laughs> it. Like, <laughs> Hell yeah. That happened to me actually in Best Buy with the um with the with the gecko, you know? I was like, holy shit, I need to buy the gecko Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> you know how he's walking across a leaf or something? Yeah, they put a lot of like r- colored balloons on a wave. I was like, we spent a lot of time in, at at I was like, Best I gotta Buy, turn on the smooth motion to make this gecko look oh real my God. smooth. Justin, you and Tom Cruise hate <laughs> smooth motion so much. <laughs> me and Tom Cruise. When T released that PSA where he was like, turn smooth motion off your TV, I was like... You're like, I love him. Yeah, I was give like... give him the Lifetime Achievement Oscar for that. Just for that, yeah. <laughs> I was like, your performance in the anti-smooth motion PSA yeah. was yeah. my performance of the year. I think I gave you the Academy Award for that one. Unbelievable. Um, what were we talking about? I don't I know. Smooth motion. <laughs> Fuck. We were talking about... Oh, we were talking about... Yeah, I don't Tom know. Cruise I just the best. Like, yeah, I, just, I, I really do feel like they just like manufactured the the demand for these movies. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think there was that much demand. And then suddenly people were like, oh yes, we demand these movies. Like it is a little bit like they pulled, you know, the rabbit out of the hat a little yeah. bit. Brian De Palma. <laughs> Brian De Palma. All Pause. right. So Brian in, De Palma. This, in this household, mm-hmm. this is a bit of a split decision on the Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. So I actually haven't seen that much Brian De Palma. So I, I'm probably like, you know, maybe this is a little unfair. Of You're not to, hot on Brian. But I'm not that hot on Brian De Palma. That's and, fine. And, and, you know, I, my my take is, like, not an interesting one. It's basically, oh, Brian De Palma, style over substance, basically, yeah. you know, personified. No, and, yeah, that's definitely his reputation. But that said, I do think this is my favorite Brian De Palma movie. And I feel like part of that is because this is Brian De Palma, maybe because it was he was reined in by Tom Cruise. But this I is an so. incredibly tight movie. And I, again, I don't mm-hmm. know how much of that is due to Brian De Palma, but it's a really, really... Um, well-paced, efficient movie. Everything which is like, you know, every like Chekhov's gun that's set up, like the Chekhov's knife, right? You get that. And every like little bit, little small detail, like if they need you to know that there are masks and they're going to, so they put the mask in in the first scene. If they need you to know that they're going to be glasses with, you know, uh, cameras in them, they've got that in there. And then they just, all that stuff just pays off again and yeah. again. And they don't have to remind you of it. So it allows for this really efficient sort of show-don't-tell storytelling. Um, and it's the same thing with the heists. Like, they're like, y- y- this guy has 17 layers of security to get into his office. And then you're like, well, it's, how's this going to work? But I now know at each layer when they're cracking it, like, what the stakes are. Like, if he's in the outer layer, uh, when he's when he's going in, you know how fast it's going to take to get from the outer layer to the inner layer. So you know how fast it's going to be that they're going to have to move to, you know, get out of sight and all that. And it's just that that is that's like, you know, I mean, De Palma is he's like the Hitchcock, you know, 2.0. That's very Hitchcockian. Like that's like just straight up like he learned at the at the um, knee of the master and he's executing at a really high level in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think it might be my favorite De Palma movie, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I like the early stuff. I like I'm I'm looking at his filmography or I will in a second, but I like the early stuff, the weird kind of like 
kind of um, trashy, <laughs> trashy stuff for, for want mean? of a the better early, word. What do you mean? They're all trashy. Ex- Everything he's done is yeah, trashy. There's okay. no not trashy well, stuff. Well, this is not trashy. Maybe not this one, but this one is not. <laughs> so like, you're like, oh yeah, the early stuff, like, you know, body double, blowout, whatever. Yeah, that's I trashy. Like but, y- Carrie, but then Black Dahlia, Femme Fatale, these are later. Well, that's the thing. I haven't seen any of those, but I like the They're sort of weird, trashy. moody uh, 80s ones. There's this one uh phantom of the paradise which is like phantom of the opera but like a, like a disco club it is bug nuts i kind of love how off the chain he is i don't like scarface that's my hot take um but yeah i, mean, I don't I think, think that's a hot take that <laughs> if that's a hot take it shouldn't be a hot take okay all right okay i don't know I, that that feels like there's a lot maybe i'm just remembering teenage boys love scarface but not everybody does um <laughs> <laughs> i'm really just thinking of my high school Paradigms boyfriend of taste right there teenage boys <laughs> Um, but no, I, but I, I like De Palma has a lot of style and I'm, and I'm like happy to forgive some of his sort of like sloppiness and, uh, you know, bloated screen time and how he can't help himself. You know, I kind of like, liked a lot, watch him do his thing. Um, but when he teams up with, when he gets a really good script and I think a lot of the things you pointed out are also due to a pretty polished script. Um, and, and also Tom Cruise wanting to like keep things tight. I think like some magic happened. I don't think they enjoyed doing it together, but it's, it's pretty remarkable, but the beginning, you know, as you point out, it's incredibly efficient storytelling, but also like the beginning is so snappy and, um, and it's the only one, I don't know if this is like, if it's a callback to the TV show, cause I haven't seen the TV show, but when they're showing, like little blips of the movie uh, as they're doing the credits, you're even kind of seeing how people are going to die, you know, um, and it feels like the TV show and they've got kind of the funky, like this like silly font with the stamp on it and stuff. It's, it's, um, it's like kind of a little cheesy, but just in the right way. And the editing is really snappy in the beginning and you're drawn in so much. And then he really slows things down. Um, but it's just like expertly done. And I think, um, this movie also is a really good balance of of style without it getting too much in the way. You know, he's got some candid angles and he's got the split diopter and there's definitely like you can feel his hand in it. But it's not like the second movie, which I think just becomes about like John Woo's, you know, style. And I don't even know what happens in that movie. I think there's like a disease that you can inject and be. I don't know. Tandy Newton's in it. It's <laughs> rock climbing, man. Come on. It has rock climbing. That's true. But that movie is all about style. Uh, and there's a lot, a whole lot of substance. Um, so that's that's my thought on Brian De Palma. This is my favorite Brian De Palma movie. Are you amazed, Justin? I, I don't know. What do you think, Adam? <laughs> I'm I amazed. think this is this is um the good example of why no one person should have all the control of a movie production. This is the best. This this is a this is a top example to me of like the tension on a movie set turning out a really great and interesting product um, because you have you have Tom Cruise with a Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner with an agenda. You've got Brian De Palma with an agenda. You've got you know people wanting this to make a lot of money and wanting it to be a franchise. But Brian De Palma also being like. I have all of these tools in my tool belt. Like, let's make this cool and interesting. Um, you get you get a, a, a very on the surface like a very cool, fun action movie. But there's a lot of stuff there in the in the narrative. But then also all of these like weird, crafty kind of things that that um, you can only get from someone who is who knows what he's doing. What 
is your guys' favorite split diopter of the movie? I'll give you a couple <laughs> options. <laughs> okay, okay, I was like, here, yeah, I, I already know, know mine. Yeah. Okay, you Adam, do? go. No, go. Go for it. Go for it. So it's the one where the the guy who had the the vomit juice in his coffee <laughs> when he's back in the vault. And he's at the computer and Tom Cruise is hanging upside yeah, down. He's hanging. Yeah, that's, that's the a, one for me. That's yeah. an amazing split diopter shot. Wait, actually, I'm going to clarify for the audience, just in the event that it's not clear what a split diopter is. So yeah, not everybody the, knows that. The The way that a camera lens is built is that it you you have a field of vision that's like the part of the camera that's in focus, basically. And there's a, it, there's a depth of that which is dependent on your f-stop. And normally... When you've got a camera very close to some object, whatever's behind the object that's further away will be out of focus. And what's, you know, when you're, when you're focused on the object that's up close. What a split diopter does is it manages to split the lens in half. It allows you to keep the background in focus while you keep the foreground in focus. And this is a kind of unnatural thing because our eyes don't work like this. Our eyes work by we focus generally right on the center of our field of vision and then everything around our field of vision is slightly out of focus and especially that's the case when there's stuff further away and what so when we see a split diopter shot it looks weird but it also it's not it doesn't always call attention to itself because it doesn't look like impossible it's just very strange looking and and um, so there's a couple ones in in the film, and and Adam just pointed out one, which is a great one because it's used so perfectly to like highlight two things at once. The guy in the who's come back into the room, who who they do not want to see Ethan Hunt, and Ethan Hunt who's hanging above the the um you know above him, and so he Ethan is obviously much further away from the camera than than the guy is. Um, so another one, um, there's a couple other split diopters. Uh, one is. In that scene, there's a split diopter between the rat and uh, Krieger. <laughs> yeah, that's a split diopter shot in the in the vent. Uh, another one is that um, uh, when Claire, as we mentioned before, when Claire blows up Hannah in the car in that flashback, and she turns to look at the camera. And again, I think as Laura pointed out, that, that that's interesting because it's it's you know again split diopter kind of there's an impossibility to the image, but maybe that's also a kind of you know. A fantastical reimagining of the of the scene, right? Um, there, I mean, even Heathen Hunt then says, like, no, 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 maybe, maybe he did it himself. He didn't have to. And then we see it another version of it in which Phelps is the one who pushes the button. Yeah. So it's like you don't know, like he's it, you don't know if that's a real scene or not. And the split diopter does kind of add to that sort yeah, of surreality of it. And then here's another one. So when <laughs> this might be my favorite, actually. So after um they've stolen the disc from the guy's name is donahue the guy who gets poisoned mm -hmm. uh so so Poor donahue's donahue. getting he's in the background and kittredge is in the foreground and kittredge is like like basically like what is it put this guy on a boat to alaska yeah or something <laughs> get him the fuck out of here and like you have him manning a desk in alaska like he just he cannot tell anyone about this and you it's a split diopter because he's in the background kind of like looking sullen looking down and then we're really focused on um, on Kittredge in the front, sort of explaining what's going to happen. I, I like that shot a lot. Anyway. And the other thing I love about that shot is that the guy that Kittredge is talking to is about an inch and a half away from his face. Yes. They are standing <laughs> so close together. It's incredible. Oh, man. Kittredge. Should we just take a moment to like remark on Kittredge? We got to talk about Kittredge, Kittredge the way he says airport. <laughs> <laughs> Put the guy at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> I will shout, you know, props to Laura. She called it that uh, Henry Cerny is Canadian. She mm -hmm. was like, I got an ear for yeah. that. Well, you just, you know, 
Sometimes you say a boot, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm an American citizen. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, but yeah, yeah Kittred, he's, he's amazing. He's great. And then again, it's another sort of De Palma flourish using the canted angle when we get to um, the, the meeting between Ethan and Kittredge. And he doesn't start that first meeting at the like weird aquarium restaurant. And he doesn't start throwing in the weird angles until after Kittredge has been like explaining it's like a mole hunt and stuff. And Ethan's like, what? You know, like, so then starts suddenly like, bam, we got these like very strange low angled canted angle yeah. shots where they're like underneath them looking up their noses, basically. Celebration was odd. Yeah. The mole's deep inside. And like you said, You survived. And it's so dramatic and it's so stylized, but it doesn't, weirdly for me, it never called attention to itself. It just made me feel like tense. Like that's like, it's oh, this is tense yeah. now. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't like, oh, cool shot. Let me take notes on that. Right. I was just like, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I totally agree with that. Um, I just wanted to like talk about um, if we're talking about side characters, Vanessa sure. Redgrave. Yeah, in oh, this. yeah, of course. Unbelievable. Of course. This movie. I also so just good. love how like the the choice for her to just be so flirty with Tom Cruise and she's like, I don't know, 30 years older than him in this. Maybe that's an exaggeration. I don't know. She's older than him in this. Uh, but that sort of like flirty energy that they have and she's just like impressed by his sort of, um, you know, when he's like, you're going to give me $10 million. Yeah. <laughs> and she <laughs> loves it. I just think she brings such a fun sparkle to this movie. Um and also, I think it's funny just as we can like circling back to Tom Cruise and his weird thing where he's like handsome, but not sexy and mm -hmm. almost and like has a problem where he doesn't have good chemistry on, uh, you know, with women oftentimes on screen all like he flirts a lot like he has like a charisma and he has sexual tension with the with the women in this movie, but all like under like um false circumstances right like he's flirting with yeah. max because he's gonna like betray her and claire is flirting with him and he's attracted to her but also knows that she might be somebody he can't trust and so like that is an extra layer of their sexual tension yeah. uh and then um oh my gosh i lost my train of thought completely there's another there's, there's another, another woman, woman in this movie well, oh, there's just when he he's pretending to like to make out with the other spy in the beginning of the movie. Oh, like, I see. right? There's always like a falseness to to his sex to his like sexiness in this in this movie, and it, that's called out, which is kind of interesting. It is it is like they in the Terminator movies they took advantage of the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he speaks, is kind of robotic. Mm. This is it is like the same thing with Tom Cruise when he when he flirts or tries to be sexy. It is it is unnatural. And yeah, he you're like he's doing so some well spy stuff. Movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's just like yeah, I don't know. It's like he knows exactly what can what works for him and what doesn't work, and he's just. But it's like it's like it's like Tom Cruise has seen other people flirt and was like, I can do that, but like never quite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How to <laughs> Am I doing it? Am I doing it? Uh, yeah. Oh, but with Vanessa Redgrave is like, dear boy. Oh, yeah. I love She's it. She's like in a in a different movie. Like I I mean this in the best way. She's like in a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's it's so good. 
<laughs> she dominates. Let she's me, not in the movie for very long, but she's no. so good. Well, let's do a head-to-head. Redgrave or Cerny as Kittredge. So, okay. So, head-to-head. All right. Round Robin, just who do you pick? You have to pick one um, as your as your champion. And you know, I think it changes every time I watch it. Okay. But I'm going Vanessa this time. Adam? I, it's Redgrave for me, too. Hell, yeah. Are you uh, getting about Kittredge? Uh, Airport. All right, I'll throw in my I'll throw in the hat for Kittredge. I mean, Vanessa Redgrave is great. She's really, really great. She sort of dominates every scene that she's yeah. in in a way that Kittredge doesn't. But Kittredge is sort of beleaguered, and I'm going to give him points for that. Um, wait, so Adam, did you want to talk about like camera movement and stuff? Well, yeah, I just I, I watching this movie um, this time around, I really noticed how at the beginning there's a lot of like left to right camera movement, and and there are there are things that there are in other perhaps sort of not as well-crafted movies, there would be a, there would be a cut. De Palma stays on one shot, especially at the beginning. They're walking into the elevator. They go down the elevator shaft and then they walk the other direction. And it's all happening on screen. Like you can see all of it happening at once. Um, And it's such a unique shot, but it's, it's so perfectly sort of sets up the mission, sets up the world. It's so much fun. Uh, I, I want that in every. You know, it spy gives you movie. a sense of space, and I think that yeah. that's the kind of thing that cuts can give you space too. But the cuts give you space by you reorienting yourself in the mm-hmm. space by seeing like, okay, I saw that cup on that side, and now there's a cut, and now I can find that cup again. But by doing it with camera movement, you you get the same sense of space, but you also get a sense of like the timing, and the timing in this movie is very important, especially in that scene of like how long does it take to go in the elevator and go down and stuff because that's what's going to happen when Glitzen's coming in and they're like, oh, we got to get the, you know, we got to get out of there. We now know how long it takes for him to get in the elevator and come down and so on. So that does add to the tension. That's another kind of Hitchcockian move of De Palma's. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about set pieces? I feel okay. like we yeah. like talked about Mission Impossible for a really long time without talking really much about the Langley scene. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. iconic. All right. So <laughs> let's break it down. Langley. Is this how you guys would break into Langley? Because I had some notes for them on that. <laughs> oh, no, really? As far as I know, this is the only way to do it. <laughs> Obviously. I like, I, can I just start with one thing? So at the beginning, they're setting it up, right? And and Ving is talking about, uh, he's like, get with the next gen crypto and the with the thinking computer chips and all that. And I was just thinking like, that's so cute. It's so cute to see like people talk about like technology from back in the day. I don't know. I find it. So many floppy that. disks. Like that's also weird to me. Like they're all running around with disks. <laughs> Gotta have those disks, baby. I like when he's trying to figure out Mac, who Max is. He's like, I'm going to type in max.com. Yeah. If that works for me. <laughs> and it's not a porn website. Um <laughs> Dude, it's pre-Google. I mean, that's the crazy thing is you're like, how did we orient ourselves in the internet before Google? And turns out it was fucking hard, man. Yeah, Like, it was really, really, really hard. I mean, you know, there was, there were other search engines and so on, but they were in somewhat shitty and inefficient. So it was, you know, oftentimes you you wouldn't get the thing that you were actually looking for. Um, They cut the scene where he asked Jeeves. Who is it's, yeah, it's true. Yeah. No, but he went to the Usenet groups, which I think is really interesting because that is how the early internet worked. It was all these little like diffuse little yeah. message boards, basically, where people would like ping each other. And mm. I mean, it was a lot like what they what they portrayed. I mean, I remember with like uh, what was it, Prodigy, right? That was like the yeah. 
that was like one of the early ISPs. And and that was kind of all I remember you would get is just access to these kinds of little message boardy exchange things. And I always wanted to do it. My parents, you know, I'll I'll out my parents, they'll probably listen to this, but they they were just like freaked out. They were like, you're going to tell people you don't know about yourself nope you're not doing that <laughs> and i was like oh man get ready i'm about to host a podcast <laughs> and be on twitter all the time like <laughs> oh man how what, far the apple has fallen what is privacy um anyhow uh back to langley langley such a cool scene i i i just think like I don't know. It's that it was it was like um, I'm sorry, I'm like starting to lose my train of thought because I'm getting really tired. But oh, it was no. like lampooned and, you know, right. Yeah, and like yeah. it was become it became a thing of parody because it was so iconic. I feel like in the late 90s. Well, let's go through the steps of the thing, because I know the part you're you're talking about, which is like the, him suspended from the ceiling. Yeah. But before we even do that, we've got the fire. They, they, they stage the fire and they mm-hmm. hack it to where because he remember he's got to get close. He's got to be on the, the laptop close enough so that he can hack into the system. So that's why they've got to do the ruse with the fire and then they the fire engine there and so on. That's the first step. Then the second step, they change out of the clothes, right? They each change out into like their respective, like they, the two guys change into their gear. Claire changes into like her like sexy secretary outfit, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then she drugs Donahue. All right, so that's like already, and I think that's cool. All before we even get into like the him dangling from the ceiling, like she puts the little pin on him, and so that now we can know where he is, um, which is super useful. Love tracking, mm-hmm. you know, tracking people like a video game like that. And then yeah, and then she drugs him, and then you know, Laura this time was like, man, poor guy. He's I felt really, really bad having for him. a bad day. <laughs> I've always felt bad for Donahue. Um, and then he's gonna get sent to Alaska. Um, but but yeah, the the scene, I mean, I, I also just think like 90s laser nets. Gotta have a laser. Can net. we bring uh-huh. back laser nets? I love a good uh-huh. laser net. What was the one with Catherine Zeta Jones? Entrapment. Entrapment, yeah. yeah. Where she's like sneaking her she's like snaking her way through the lasers. Mm-hmm. And like some but, lycra. This is the same thing with the Oceans 12. There's a laser net. Yeah. Sort of. Is there? Yeah, dodging Ooh, laser beams. I love laser nets. I love them. But also, like, do they have a problem with the rats in the air ducts? Do they ever get like fried <laughs> by the laser nets? That's the question that I have. How did the rat get in the la- the, the duct that's 30 feet above? <laughs> they that- should have just trained a rat did to you steal the remember how list. hard it was? <laughs> remember how hard it is for Ethan Hunt and and uh Krieger to get up there? They've got to use those like magnet things and yeah. like, pull their bodies up. How'd the rat do that? Man, was rats the rat, can get in anywhere. <laughs> was the rat using his like magnet thing or did he use like a grappling hook? How did he get up there? That's 30 feet up. I don't know. Those are the questions that we have. <laughs> I'm going to write to De Palma and be like, come on. <laughs> all right. So then they get in there. They got a low. Well, first of all, they take out that laser net. No problem. Yeah, they just, they just they do get a, a little mirror. mirror. It's done. Yeah. Done. That's done. Kinda, yeah, that was kind of easy, I guess. But then, you know, and then actually, I, I do like the small touch of actually the... Uh, catching the screws. The catching the screws. Yes. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. The, like, magnet thing that unscrews them and then catches them. That's really cool. Yeah, I noticed that, too, this time around. Yeah. It's like, they thought of everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then he's just suspended above the ceiling. And and just having Donahue come back, and then they have to pull him back up at that first thing. It's just yeah. so tense. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not like a. I mean, I think all the 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 heistiness of it is complicated. The stunt itself is not as complicated, given that we what we're oh, going to yeah, see Tom sure, Cruise yeah, sure. do. Um, but it's so 
balletic. You know, he's even wearing like jazz shoes or something. He's got like and, little dance shoes on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he and the scene where he almost drops and then has to hold his body up. That actually is incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you see him really working like that's a lot of core work. You know, he's like not afraid to like have his sweat and his like grimace, you know, be on screen. He's not going to make it look easy. He's like, this is hard, guys. Yeah. Like, I need you to know, like, I'm graceful, but this is like. This is really hard. <laughs> also, Tom Cruise is looking pretty buff in this movie. Oh, I, you know, yeah. like his guns. He's got the guns out at one point, And I was like, man, look like he's doing some curls. Yeah, <laughs> he looks great in this movie. And I love those glasses. I think he I think that maybe is why I love the Langley scene so much as he's wearing those little glasses, his little video camera glasses. But why doesn't Tom Cruise wear glasses more? He's adorable because he doesn't need them. He's got perfect vision. Oh, he's a probably. perfect human specimen. Laura. Why would he? <laughs> what are you talking about? And then, yeah, you know. Is- yeah, go ahead. Dan. I was just going to say the other thing after he's like dangling two inches off the ground, he gets pulled up and he has to swing back to the computer. And the way that he catches himself with his foot yep. is so cool. And it happens so fast. Uh, they don't really make a moment out of it, but it, but it, it is really impressive and, and a lot of fun. It rules. And then, yeah. And then he gets the disc, you know, got it in the mouth. He's got two foreshadowing again, what's, what's going to come. And Krieger pulls him up. And I mean, there, of course, we have all the like, it's it's possibly too loud. And I love that final bit where Krieger is, he's killed the rat, obviously, with his knife. And then he's just like sloppy and he drops the knife and it just goes, it's so good. And it's just silent as the knife just falls down right when the guy opens the door. Yeah. I mean, it's great because it's doing so much work. That knife is doing so much work because yep. like, it's, it's how knife. it's Chekhov's knife. Yeah, it's like how Donahue knows that something's been stolen. It's incredibly tense because you think they might get caught. And also, like, it is, he's like, look at the knife. I've already showed it to you once because Krieger lifts it up before in the scene before, I think, when they're still in their fireman yep. outfits and yep. he says, no body count. Yep. But De Palma, shown they've shown it twice, but yep. De Palma's like, I'm going to give it to you one more time. Like, you're, this is going to come back, guys. <laughs> um, yeah. Because yeah, before, because you saw the knife, he gets the bloody knife off of uh, when he when he discovers the Galitzin and, and Kristen Sotham has been murdered. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's efficient filmmaking, man. It doesn't get better than that. Maybe the only silly part is the, the drop of sweat. No, that's good. <laughs> you like it? That okay. He, okay. That it's catches. Because, yeah. yeah. Became yeah. so iconic. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is like, if if there was an internet back then, really, in the same it way would be a now, meme. it would have been a meme. Like, yeah. it, right, easily, that would have been the meme. The like, it would have just been like the like, clip of him with the thing and then the hand and then it would have just been you know some yeah like on their slack channel when you're like you know exactly like 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 (laughs) me facing a deadline at 12 a.m and then like (laughs) catching it like submitted at 1201 you know like that's you know it's like a perfect meme why are we not making this meme right now it could still be a meme it can it's not too late i mean we were all talking about the tarzan soundtrack a couple months ago for some reason like like this can still be a meme I think we got to do it. Wait, which Tarzan soundtrack? The Phil Collins one. Okay, okay. Remember the the meme circulating that was like, Phil Collins did not have to go this hard for the sound to it, oh. the Tarzan soundtrack, but he did it for us. Like, <laughs> no, I missed that I meme, and I'm thank you for telling me. <laughs> I've been in toddler land. I didn't know about that one. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the Tarzan soundtrack it should be in your wheelhouse soon, then because it's <laughs> it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. Toddler music. <laughs> Unless we just Unless skip. We only show to him Tenet. Tenet. Yeah, skip straight to Tenet. That's that's the it's zero to Tenet. Is um, the, so Langley, 
pretty amazing set piece. There really are three major set pieces yeah. in this movie, but the Langley one is kind of the the main the main one. You also got the train one, which is cool. I mean, the the uh, here's the shout out on the train one. I mean, I think they filmed it with fans so mm-hmm. that they would like blowing on. That was how his, his face could react to the to the wind, and then. Did they sh- did they like composite them in? I mean, the background looks great. It looks really good. It doesn't I, look like like rear projection. Sometimes has that sort of strange. It doesn't distance. look like rear projection. It also doesn't totally look like blue or green screen. I don't really know what they did, and it kind of looks like its own thing. It doesn't look real yeah. either, but it also doesn't look like if this were done now, it would look so CGI'd and it would look too real. I just think I kind of dig how kind of odd and un yeah it's good i i think the other two set pieces in this movie though like later films in the franchise did those set pieces better Mm -hmm. um i think this movie kind of laid the groundwork for what a good mission impossible action scene was um and the langley heist i think is is kind of the iconic version of that but but they upped the stakes in the other movies in a way that um you know it's never like bruce willis uh flying flying a car into a helicopter like it happens in the diehard movies like like it's the stakes are upped in each movie in a way that sort of works yeah they're it's grounded these movies movies all that that was the main thing that if there is a through line besides tom cruise it's that we're going to try to do as much as we can practically and Mm -hmm. grounded in kind of real world physics um and that i have to imagine is part of why those movies are so successful is that people are kind of burned out or whatever. They at least want something that's not just a CGI slugfest between Thanos and his 65 enemies. They love that there's a weight to this. When Tom Cruise jumps across the Brit, the, the, the buildings in Fallout, he falls the way a human being would fall. Like, because he's really doing it. And so you're like, our mind has a sense of how the physical world should work because we've lived in it for a long time. At least some of us have. I don't live in the physical world, but uh, and so we just develop through that exp- constant ex- experience a sense of like, yeah, if an object is this big with this amount of wind resistance, it's just naturally going to look like this when it falls. It's hard to duplicate that in a computer. Yeah. It just turns out really, really difficult to do. And when Tom Cruise just jumps it, it looks good. And so I, I have to imagine that's part of the appeal. It's just you know that it's real and um and it just looks better than anything that is faked um yeah so i mean especially on imax right i mean and we were we were talking about how earlier with, with go to call ghost protocol um and we saw it in imax and i remember going into that movie again as just re- to rehash this slightly i'm not thinking i don't need to see this is stupid and my, my parents are kind of dragging I, why were you there were we visiting them in pennsylvania mm-hmm. yeah and and so like my dad is really into these movies so he's like guys we got to see it and it's an IMAX and I was like whatever fine not realizing that we were go- about to see Ghost Protocol in real IMAX so none of this like oh it's IMAX but it's not real it's just a normal right. size screen and they call it IMAX I don't know how they get away with that no this was like the real like you're at an aquarium and mm-hmm. you're watching like a nature documentary IMAX it's like 70 foot screen or whatever and I remember because the screen went down below where the first seats were. It's like one of those screens where like the first seats start at like, you know, 10 feet above where the screen drops down. And when we get to Burj Khalifa, which we're going to talk about, 
I mean, it was overwhelming. <laughs> I was like, holy crap. Yeah. Like you're, it's like a, a level of sensorial like envelopment that like, you know, you're enveloped in this way that like is kind of, it's like unbelievable and, and it's impossible to, your brain just can't process it. And the fact that, you know, the whole time I was like, this has to be green screen. I didn't know anything. And so I was like, this has to be fake. And then learning later that it wasn't and, you know, thinking, I mean, it's just really incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, so for you guys, uh, thinking about the entire franchise, entire Mission Impossible franchise, do you have a, I mean, I've already mentioned Burj Khalifa. I, I suspect maybe that will be your favorite, but do you have a favorite action set piece? I have two, yeah. So yeah. Um, one of them is the motorcycle chase in Rogue Nation is just incredible. And you, you talk about like danger. Um they are they are going so fast on those motorcycles. Yes. Uh and and like you are like along with them the whole time. It's it's is edge of my seat every time. And then and then the end of Fallout to me, where he's dangling off the helicopter, the helicopter. and he climbs up and and that to me, it's just like kind of perfect action movie movie making. Just in so like the spectacle of it is so, so much fun. It's brilliant. Laura, what what Birch Khalifa. For I mean, it's it's stunning visually, but also I think what I like about it is that um, much like Langley, Tom Cruise gets to have a performance in an acting performance in that scene in a way that like when he's hanging onto a uh, you know hanging onto a side of an uh, airplane, which is amazing. Like we're not really like he's not layering on the emotions in that scene. We're just watching him hang on for dear life. But the thing that you know, Ghost Protocol is not my favorite movie of the franchise, but I do really wait, wait, like- wait, 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 time out. Time out. It was your favorite movie of the franchise, like up until five seconds ago. No, I love the OG. That's my favorite. Go to Call is high though. And I and Did that Dustin, change like in this viewing? No. Used to say used to say Ghost Protocol. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever. It's ebbed just, and flowed. Yeah, Justin I, and I fight about Ghost Protocol. But I <laughs> what I do like about and there's some things that are that's the thing. I think there's nothing cringy about the first Mission Impossible, and there's a very cringy scene. Yeah in go to call that is unforgivable so you know but here i go trying to forgive it so it's a messy movie man. <laughs> whatever what i like about it though is that is this running through line of like once they've been disavowed like their stuff starts breaking yeah mm-hmm. it's funny and and it's and it hasn't been done bef- you know before in this franchise and brad bird brings this sort of like zippy cartoonish energy to it but the thing with burj khalifa is like it's incredible because it your brain is like, is that Tom Cruise? That can't be Tom Cruise. If it's Tom Cruise, he's not really on the side of the building. Wait, is he on the side of the building? You know, you're, that 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 is like bringing an extra element of terror to it, just knowing that like it seems really real. It's probably real. Or if you know ahead of time going in that it's real. But also that like Tom Cruise is acting. He's really good at being both incredibly competent and daring and still scared. You know, you see the fear on his face. He's also mm-hmm. pissed because his gloves keep breaking. Yeah. He's really annoyed, you know? <laughs> and I <laughs> and I think the scene going into, he was like, they were like, okay, well, who's good? It wasn't clear necessarily it was going to be Ethan Hunt who gets who does the, the deed. And they all just sort of stare at him. And he's like, oh, man, I got to do everything. Jeremy Renner's here. He's like 10 years younger than me. We're not going to make Jeremy do it? All right, here I go. You know, like, and he's like, got to do everything myself in this joint. You know, and like, so he's irritated and he's like, freaked out because he's gonna he could die and he's like you see this terror on his face you see the annoyance on his face but also like you also know he's gonna do it because he's tom cruise and he's incredible i just i love that there's like all that stuff going on in burj khalifa so it's also it's also a bit of a reward 
for like someone who has watched all of these movies at the beginning of, of Mission Impossible 2, he's free solo rock climbing. So you know that he has the technique That's and right. able to do this, which me as someone who rock climbs, like I am obsessed with just that scene in Mission Impossible 2 because the rest yeah. of it is a mess. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I love sort of all of those things that are going on as he's climbing outside the building. It's amazing. Adam, do you have a favorite of the franchise, a favorite movie? I think so. It's it's between Fallout and Rogue Nation for me. Um, both of those are just like I, I feel like they kind of get the tone exactly right, where mm-hmm. there are real stakes, um, but it's also kind of a big spectacle '70s James Bond movie yep. in the best way. Um, yeah, so I, I think answering the question right now, it's Rogue Nation, but. Yeah, that's, me too. I me, no, me too. I think that's the point when the when the franchise like figures it out, figures like out what it what it is, and I'm excited to see what they do, you know, going forward because I think it's it is really it's it's almost too bad that they didn't figure that out like 15 years ago because I feel like you know you would have had 15 years of Tom Cruise in his prime doing this kind of shit, and now we're gonna be seeing a decline because i i hope at least because he's getting older and i don't want him to hurt himself yeah i worry about him um, i'm kind of glad though that we have these weird like time capsule movies for the mission impossible series uh you know like two and three two and three two and three they are doing they're on their own planet and i like both of them in their own ways two is tough but but three the jj abrams is bringing something fun to that too i i I revisited when we were doing our summer of cruise a couple years ago and i was like there's a lot to say about three no no philip seymour hoffman is i think somebody had mentioned this anyway i think i agree is the best villain of the the whole thing and so that elevates three and um there's yeah he I don't know what he's doing that is making it so effective, but yeah, he's sort of staring Tom Cruise right in the eye and matching him kind of blow Mm -hmm. for blow. Um, And it's, it's really compelling. But anyway, I think, I think we got to the bottom of it. It's, it's obviously rogue nation. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best one. No, but this one's amazing. Actually, this one is my number two. So just wanted to not go to call down a few pegs. (laughs) Maybe we'll, we'll have to have you back Adam. We can talk about ghost protocol and all my qualms. (laughs) To me, there's, there's like a list. There's like a cluster at the, at the high level. And then three is kind of just underneath it. And then two is on its own planet. Yeah. Yeah. Two Two is unfortunate, but um, (laughs) Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this was fun. Uh, and also thank you for suggesting, I mean, you gave us a bunch of movies, but Mission Impossible was among them. And it was a fun sort of impetus to go back and rewatch. And we had done this 96 series and pointedly chose not to do Mission Impossible for the 96 series. And then in retrospect, I think that was kind of a mistake. I think it would have been really good to have done it in that context. But I'm really glad that we got a chance to do it here with you. Yeah, this was so fun. And if you ever decide to watch a 70s James Bond movie, Please let me know, and I will talk to you about it for two hours. Sweet. Uh, we I've never seen any of the seventies James Bond. I can. All, I will. I'll. I'll recommend where. Okay. Too. All right. I have a real blind spot with that. I saw the other uh, Pierce Brosnan ones when I was a kid, but that yeah. was about it. Yeah. Um. I, I just. I, I consider all of them to be problematic favorites, but. Uh, but they're. You know. They're interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they right. I mean, they're some of Christopher Nolan's favorite movies, so yeah. that makes them some of my favorite movies. <laughs> um uh thanks everyone for joining us we are at cows pod on twitter uh you can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com 
And feel free to leave us a voice message where you can tell us what we got wrong or what we got right, uh, or tell us what movies you want us to cover. Um, coming up next, we have uh, Amadeus with Edward. What's Edward's name? Oh, my God. Coming up next time, we have Amadeus with our friend Edward Lewis. Excellent. So look forward to that. And You'll, you'll edit that to make it look good, right? Yeah, I'm going to edit that in. <laughs> Thank I'm edit you. That in I don't know what their schedule is. <laughs> yeah, Emily knew our schedule better than we did. Yeah, we had a guest on and we were like fumbling at this part. And she's like, well, I'm on your website and your next episode is this. So we were like, you should show us the business. Yeah, some people know what they're doing. Other people just do. It. <laughs> anyway, thanks, guys. All right, I'll stop recording. Thank you.